this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think it's just so important to really, you know, figure out what the patient wants and what sort of their swallowing and eating rituals look like before, you know, this impairment or sickness or illness happen because sometimes we try to fix things that weren't broken to begin with or we have these ideas of what is important in our culture and maybe totally different to a different family. So really, I think that's paramount. And first and foremost, obviously, getting the solo studies is so important as well. You guys are doctors, you know, the importance of instrumentation. And it's just so tough when we hear, you know, administrators saying, well, we don't want to pay for those tests or can't you just tell if they're aspirating? No, you can't. Like, there's no explanation other than no. <laughs> so as much as you could, you know, help us and advocate to get those tests done, it is really what's best for the patient. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Protect your most valuable asset, the skill and ability to practice your medical specialty. One out of three individuals become disabled during their career. Be prepared by establishing a specialty-specific disability insurance policy from the experts at DI4MDs. They represent all the major disability insurance companies that provide individual policies for physicians. Special discounts are available for all physicians, residents, and the military. Whether you have no coverage, or to compare and improve your current coverage, or take advantage of the new higher monthly benefit, contact them today at www dot di4mds.com. Again, that's www.di4mds.com or call them at 888-934-4637. Again, that's 888-934-4637. My name is Gopi Shaw and I'm a pediatric ENT and I'm here with my lovely, amazing colleague, podcast co-host, and my dearest friend, Dr. Ashley Agan. Hello, Gopi. <laughs> How are you this morning? I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm always excited to be here on this podcast because we have amazing guests. And in the last couple of days, it's our national, the COSM meeting. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's been nice to run into uh, old friends, colleagues, mentors, and just more amazing people. Absolutely. I know. I felt the same way after getting to kind of um, run into some old friends and uh, be have a conference in person again. That was cool just to have that energy and be able to see people um, was a lot of fun. Yeah. So can I introduce our guest today? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Teresa Richard is a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and medical speech and language pathologist in Jacksonville, Florida. She's founder and CEO of Medical SLP Collective and Med SLP Education and has her own podcast, Swallow Your Pride Podcast. She is the author of the book, So You're Having Trouble Swallowing. She previously owned Mobile Dysphagia Diagnostics, which provided mobile fees studies to thousands of patients in over 100 skilled nursing facilities across four states. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, your practice. Yeah, yeah. So I um, went to grad school to be a speech pathologist. Always just wanted to get into a helping profession, really. I have a brother with cerebral palsy who used... Um, you know, augmentative communication devices growing up. And I just was always frustrated with the lack of access to the communication technologies and things like that. So that's really what sparked my interest in speech pathology to begin with. 
went to graduate school, thought I was going to come out working with kids, did my fellowship with kids and realized that I did not want to work with kids Um, (laughs) and, and decided to take another fellowship in the nursing homes. And oddly enough, I ended up just loving it. I did not think I would ever work with swallowing disorders, but I just found the work to be so impactful. Just I, I loved connecting with, you know, residents in the skilled nursing facility that have had these amazing long lives and have done these amazing things and now all of a sudden find themselves not being able to swallow. You know, it's something that's such a huge part of our quality of life and just means so much to so many people. And then to all of a sudden not be able to do it. I just found the work to be really, really impactful. So I worked in skilled nursing for about five, six years. And at the time, we had a company come in and do mobile fees procedures, which is a fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. And it's within speech pathologist scope of practice to do it to evaluate swallowing. I know you guys use the endoscope for a bajillion other things, but um, we just use it as a camera to view the swallow. So I decided I really loved that diagnostic portion. I felt like a lot of what we did was really a puzzle and just you know, being able to give these patients answers as to why they can't swallow or what what they might be able to modify or what they might be able to have at Thanksgiving dinner. Um, so I really just love that diagnostic portion. And so I ended up starting a mobile fees company when I was living in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I had that for a few years. And then I had a son who was born with a very rare chromosomal abnormality. And of course, he had to have a baby fees when he was a newborn. So Things hit really close to home there. It was really interesting because we did not have a speech pathologist in the NICU. He was in the NICU for 15 days and was not eating. And they really just had no answers for us. They just said, oh, he'll figure it out. He'll figure it out. And I just knew um, you don't just figure it out. (laughs) Um, So that really, you know, set my mama heart into overdrive and really inspired the, the book that I ended up writing as well, because I had all these patients, all this experience with patients at the end of life. And now I'm working with my own son, learning how to eat at the beginning of life. So um, hit me with anything. I've got experience across all ages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I think you hit the, uh, you said it perfectly. Uh, the di- It's a puzzle uh, in swallowing. I don't think I've, as the more I Obviously, my practice is pediatric, but more uh, the more I see, you know, kids that have trouble swallowing dysphagia, you know, whether they're NPO to certain foods, it is so complicated. It is. It is. The more, you know, I'm just, it's not just a little, okay, just do this. Like it's, it's really hard to kind of uh, understand why. And then, you know, how do we use the tools that we have and what's going to benefit, whatnot. And um, like you said, it's a major quality of life, you know, as well as, you know, fun- you know, health with weight gain and things like that to how we connect with our families and our, you know, people around us. So it, it's it's such a hard and really requires a team approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So what does your practice look like now? Yeah. So I actually, I, I've worked in mobile fees. I, like I said, um, moved a few times, worked across a few states. I ended up selling my mobile fees company last year. And the reason was because in the meantime, I realized while I was out in the field that even so many people in our own profession, even so many other speech pathologists didn't realize what we were capable of, just didn't have the tool set, didn't have the skill set. You learn very little about swallowing in graduate school. And I think I selfishly, I believe it's the most impactful. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I just don't think you know, as you, as you mentioned, Gopi, you know, there's nutrition and there's quality of life. There's so many things that are, that require eating. 
So I sort of went on this crusade of just education and I started blogging and the blog sort of took off. And from there, that's when I started podcasting and, and started the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And from there, it just speech pathologists kept reaching out, wanting more and more and more knowledge. So I started a continuing education membership site called the MedSLP Collective. Um, and once COVID hit, I actually, I had another baby, went on maternity leave and then COVID hit. And sort of when I went to go back to work after, when I went to go back to work after maternity leave, COVID was raring and there was such more of a need for me to be involved with the continuing education because speech pathologists were just, you know, wondering what do we do? How do we help all these patients? How do we help these patients coming off the vent? Can we do swallow studies on COVID positive patients? You know, what do the precautions look like? So I sort of found myself just on the back end of the education aspect of it. So, which was not where I ever thought I would be, um, but I love it. I love the, I love being able to do the digging in the background and, and, help deliver, you know, information to people that are on the front lines, people that are in the field like this. This is what the research says. This is what other, you know, facilities are doing. These are the procedures that other facilities have come up with. So it's been really, really rewarding to be on that end of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to skip over your podcast. Her podcast is like number 10, number 11, like it's in the top of Apple podcasts for medicine. So She's Teresa's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> this is a is a, is a pretty yeah. amazing podcast that is reaching a lot of people. So bravo! Thank you, and, thank you. And the title is amazing. I love it. Swallow, Swallow your, pride. your pride. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a great yeah. title, and the, yeah. and the book title is great too. I mean, I, it's it's so. But anyways, I think <laughs> yeah. another thing with um, speech therapists or speech language pathologists. There's a bit of a branding issue when you're talking to patients about I'm sending you to the speech therapist for swallowing, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I find myself always having to kind of say like, well, but that is, you know, they're also experts in that because they're like, I don't need a speech therapist. Yep. I can yep. talk yep. fine. Yep. Yeah. And I, well, yep. and I think it. so it's one thing where you're kind of like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then honestly, for my side of it, sometimes I don't always really know or understand or maybe have the exposure to all the details and different things that the speech language pathologist does and offers. And really, uh, since I've been in my practice, I have to say, coming out of training, I don't definitely didn't really get it. And the more and more I see patients, the more my, our, my poor speech pathologist here, Ashley Brown, she's like our swallow expert for our uh, pediatric ENT patients. I send her stuff like messages all the time, questions all the time, because it's just, there's just, it's such a hard patient population. It, yeah, it really yeah. is. Yeah, it's yeah. it's tough, and it, and it's interesting because, like I said, we don't get much training on it in grad school. Um, there's a few graduate programs that have really intensive medical backgrounds, but on the other, most of us have just been out there working, learning by experience, learning, reading the research ourselves, attending different conferences. So it's sort of the wild, wild west. And I, it just was something I became so passionate about that I just dove headfirst into all the research, and I just wanted to know more about this area because like I said I just think it's so impactful and just you know such a quality of life but on the flip side and I, and I don't want to talk about the negative because I'm not I'm, I'm a half plus full person all the time but we have a lot of speech pathologists in the field that mean well and that think they're doing the right things with their patients and, and might be doing some exercises that we once thought were good that we have no research or or even effective and same with swallow studies. There's there's people think it's pass fail and it's not. They can tell us a ton of information. So really just what I do is is I just want people to be able to have this information at their fingertips so that 
they can help their patients the best that they can. Because what I don't want is a patient to go to a speech pathologist, say they have swallowing trouble and just not get the answers or not get guidance that they needed. Yeah, I think that's it's so true that that eating is such a core part of how we, you know, socialize and, um, you know, part of who we are. You know, when patients can't eat anymore, it's um, it's a big deal. Um, Whether it's your baby, your grandparent, your spouse, yeah. your friend. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Like, yeah. And, you know, yeah, having that, you know, anxiety or embarrassment about going out to eat with people just, you know, all, all over the place. Um, yeah. So let, let's get into, you know, talking about dysphagia. And Gopi and I had, you know, when we were talking about it, we, we were thinking, well, first, we probably need to just set the stage with some terminology because even Gopi and I, you know, use different terms when talking about barium swallow, modified barium swallow, video, fluoroscopy, fees. There's all these different terms, you know, that that are technically swallow studies, you know, different ways to look at the swallow. But, you know, diff- you can call them different things depending on, you know, um, who you are, where you are. Tell us about that. It's interesting. The modified barium swallow study has been around a, a while. Gosh, I think maybe in the 70s, I believe, is when is Dr. Jerry Logeman basically, I don't want to say invented it, but pretty much is the one that that came up with that procedure. And that sort of was the gold standard for the longest time. And that is an x-ray. It's done from the side. So you're able to see the swallow on an x-ray. Dr. Susan Langmore in the 90s basically invented fees, which is fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. It's a top-down view, obviously, with the endoscope. So Each has their pros and cons. Um, What I like to say is which test is best. And to me, it's the one you can actually get. And I think we all know limitations of working in hospitals, working in doctor's offices. Are you rural? Are you, you know, where are you located? Sometimes the logistics of getting the ideal test just do not happen, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with, you know, if you're in the NICU or working in skilled nursing. So for me, ideally, I just always say the test you can get is the best. We can obviously get into the pros and cons of some. What I do want to talk about also is the difference between the modified barium swallow study and a barium swallow that GI does. Because so many times, this is something that I just want to educate every like intake coordinator and every scheduler mm-hmm. at a hospital. I even went through it with my own son. We were trying to get one scheduled. Uh, and she's like, are you sure you don't want the barium swallow? And I was like, no, I know what test I need. <laughs> and so that's just so frustrating. And, and I hate that they're, you know, they're coined so similarly. But uh, video fluoroscopy is sort of the the new name now or video swallow, basically, because it's done with fluoro. So a lot of people still do call it the modified barium swallow study. But video fluoroscopy is now sort of the the new the new term to use. Okay. And, yeah. and that's probably better because then it takes the barium name out Correct. of it. So you're less likely to confuse <laughs> barium swallow and modify barium swallow. Correct. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. And when you're thinking, let's say you, I think you make a great point. It's which one can you get? But let's yes. say you have a patient that will tolerate both. Which one do you like for what problems or what you're, which one tells you what? Yeah. Yeah. So you know. I, I am a, in my perfect world, I would always do a fees first. And I say that because I think there's so much information that it can give us right off the bat. It's obviously, a, it's a real live picture. So you're viewing the larynx, you're viewing the vocal folds. Um, you can see the esophageal inlet. So there's things that you can see right off the bat that we might be able to say, ooh, 
this is something that just needs to go right to ENT or this just needs to go right to GI. I think sometimes we get ahead of ourselves in trying to intervene and trying to fix things therapeutically that might need surgical or medical intervention. With the fees specifically, a lot of times, I mean, we just see so much effects of reflux or even allergies, things like that, you know. So that's when we got to send them off to you guys to just get them, you know, medically or surgically stable first. So that's why I'm such a big believer in in fees as sort of the primary tool, especially because it is so easy for us to use all the time. It doesn't involve all the logistics of radiology, but things that you see on fees, you know, we assess especially a lot of secretions. A lot of these patients that are trachs and vents, secretions are a huge thing. So we can sort of tell if they're, if they have secretion management or not. We are able to view different foods and, and liquids and textures that we can actually see them on the fees. Um, we assess for different laryngeal, pharyngeal anatomy and sensory deficits. You know, you can view if there's focal paralysis or paresis. You can check out why there might be different voice changes. Um, and it especially can be really beneficial for like pre or post head and neck cancer surgery as well. So those are sort of the top things that you would really want to go to fees first. Um, but like I said, I, I'm really biased and I admit that. And I always think that, that fees is the best tool to use first. But a lot of people that don't have experience with fees and still believe the video fluoroscopy is the gold standard will absolutely take the information we can get from that any day. But video fluoroscopy is superior when looking at esophageal issues because we're able to see basically from the nose down to the stomach if the radiologist allows us to scan down that far and get a view of the lower esophagus as well. You do get a much better image of the oral phase of the swallow on, vit or on video fluoroscopy because it's on the side. So you can tell if there's chewing, rotary chew, if they're able to basically bolus transit, you're able to tell if the tongue's moving in the right direction, all that stuff. So yeah, those are pretty much the biggest differences about when you would use one or the other, but a lot of it comes down to, <laughs> to logistics, if I'm being honest. So, And for yeah. your fees, are you, you're using like dyed foods like you know you do thin liquids thick liquids puree a cookie or something like that and looking for residue and seeing how it passes yep i've always i just was trained to use green food coloring so that's what i use it it colors the water easier it's very easy to see on the contrast versus sort of the pinkish reddish you know features that we see there's been a lot of research that's been done actually lately with white food coloring so like white cake frosting dye um, and what they found is that actually the white is able to be visualized much better than any of the others when it is going down into the trachea. So it's been interesting to tell, you know, are patients aspirating more than we think they are with this white dye versus any other color? So that's been some interesting findings that have really come to light in the last few years that I know a lot of the researchers are looking into. I wonder if it's, you know, when it, something goes through the cords, it's going to be shadowed and it's going to get, it's kind of dark down there. And then, wow, I didn't, but I would have never thought about that. <laughs> I, I think that. I just, yeah, I think it's so fascinating. Like I said, I've been doing fees for, I started in 2013. It's almost 10 years now. And just to watch the technology improve as rapidly as it has, I just think of like the original endoscope that I had, sort of the grainy structures. And now it's like this HD, you can see just, it's crazy. Yeah. Like, I yeah, that distal chip is nice. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. And then do you, so when you were just going to the uh, mobile fees practice, what were you taking with you? Did you also have a tower and a screen? Were you recording these? Is it mostly just what you see in your eye? Yeah, so so you guys are lucky enough that you get the big, huge, beautiful towers. But obviously that's <laughs> not <laughs> ideal for mobile. So 
A few companies make these mobile units, which is essentially just a laptop or like a tablet and an endoscope just plugs in via USB. Um, so we are, it does have, you know, recording capabilities. It's, you know, actual medical technology software on there. So I literally would just carry like a little briefcase with the laptop, with the endoscope, the USB cord in that. And then I also carried a bag that had, you know, the cleaning solution, alcohol swabs, everything that we need for the high level disinfectant to do that, as well as the green dyes. I would bring in, depending on which state, some states allow you to bring foods into the nursing home. Some do not. Um, so sometimes I had to use what they had there. But I like I like to make it really individual for the patient, to be honest. We do have protocols in that, you know, you, you should start with thin liquids up to thickened liquids and then different food textures. But I really like to see what the patient likes. And that's something I, I'm something that is my, you know, high horse. I will talk till the cows come home about patient preference and what's important to the patient and the family. And we can trial all these different textures, but if it's nothing that they even care to eat, then how do we transfer those results over into what they really want to do at home. So that's something I really would try to do too, especially in a skilled nursing setting where if we know they're going home soon, you know, what foods are you going to eat all the time? If I tell you to eat this, are you actually going to eat it? <laughs> so I, I like fees and that I try to make it very individual. And I had this one woman that all she cared to eat was M&Ms. And so we did the study with M&Ms and she <laughs> aspirated all the M&Ms, <laughs> but we at least had that information. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. Oh, so man. So so in your evaluation, uh, I guess we'll just kind of like take you know take it from the top. You know, for, as a patient's coming in to see you, and um, or you're going to see them if it's mobile. You know, what's the history taking look like? What's important? Um, what are important things to be asking? And I guess you know another thing from our side of it, what important things do we need to be asking too before we're sending patients your way? Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of all the above. You know, just a, a normal case history, you know, what what surgical interventions have they had? You know, what is their medical history look like? Medications is a huge thing too. You know, it, as I'm sure you guys know, medications can impact the swallow greatly. So sometimes it's just nothing that we can do therapeutically as much as just recommending, you know, sending them back to the physician and getting a change in their medications. Are there are there particular medications that are common ones that stand out that affect the swallow? There are. There's um, especially a lot of muscle relaxers. If you think okay. of the swallow, it's about 40 different muscles that make the swallow mm. happen. So sometimes if you have patients on Ativan or something like that or another form of muscle relaxant and they complain that they can't swallow, um, that's something to consider. So that's sort of when we work closely with the psychologists in the facility too to see, you know, what can we do to sort of relax this patient or ease the behaviors that they're having, but also still allow them to be able to eat by mouth because it can be very dangerous. There's many, mm -hmm. you know, cases of patients aspirating or choking while on a muscle relaxant. So that makes um, sense. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is the the Parkinson's medication. So levodopa, the timing of those, we've seen it, it's night and day if you see a patient or a Parkinson's patient before or after they've had their medication. Um, it can be just the most uncoordinated swallow ever, but you give them the medication and it's all of a sudden beautiful. So that's one thing as soon as you see a patient with Parkinson's and if you know that they're on, you know, a levodopa regimen, make sure that they're eating about a half an hour after they've been given that medication. So that's something that's very common to find that to be so a, an your, easy solution. In when you do home, your yeah. evaluation, do you have yeah. them time the medication so that you get the best possible test? Ideally. Okay. Ideally. Yep. Yep. Because sometimes you just can't get anything, you yeah. know, if 
Um, so we, sense, we try yeah. to, yeah, yeah. And, and also just educate them too and just say, you know, hey, without this med- medication, you're going to be calling me in again because it's going to be really ugly. The patient's going to be struggling, you know, so do you want to do it before the medication or after? There's obviously, you know, pros and cons to both sides, but you want it, obviously the patient to be eating and swallowing as effectively and safely as possible. Do you find that medications that have dry mouth as a side effect do those? Because I, I tend to blame that a lot because I'm like, well, you just don't have enough saliva and, you know, your mouth's too dry that you can't. Is that, um, do you see that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one thing, too, is those those lemon swabs. A lot of people tend in, in the nursing homes or in the hospitals to tend tell people to use those to sort of do oral care, which, no, we should just be using a toothbrush and toothpaste for oral care. But the lemon swabs, too, dry out the mucosa immensely. So then people don't have enough saliva to be able to produce a swallow. So usually I just tell everyone, please throw out all the lemon glycerin swabs. And yeah, so if you're a producer of those, please don't come after me, but figure out a way to keep the mouths wetter. That's a good question, Ash. Um, and when I think about it in the pizza world, Teresa, do you ever see like some of the, um, the, in terms of secretion, right? Secretion management is a big thing. And every once in a while, a patient might be on something like glycopyrrolate or a scopolamine patch to help dry it up a bit. Do you ever find that that can be, that dysphagia or something can be a side effect from that medication absolutely, as well? Absolutely, absolutely. I know, I know the scopolamine patches are such a necessary evil sometimes. You know, I know we see patients almost, for lack of a better term, drowning in their own yeah. secretion. So They'll be recommended one of those patches, but then on the flip side, it dries them out so much that they can barely swallow. So, you know, that's something that I think is so important for the speech pathologists and the doctors to work so closely together to, you know, weigh the pros and cons of that. Because I've seen the scopolamine patches help tremendously, but then I've also seen them, you know, tip back the other way and cause all these unwanted side effects. So when I do see that patch, I usually... We'll bring it up and just, you know, probe a little bit more, you know, why, why did you start having or why did you start using this patch? Have you noticed anything different since? And it's sometimes patients are like, it's been a lifesaver. And other times they're like, I'm so dry. I, you know? yeah. <laughs> so that's when, yeah, we'll go back to the doctor and just try to brainstorm it. Is there something else yeah. we can do or, yeah. It's such a hard balance. It um, is. It is. Because of secretion management, aspiration, are they eating and drinking, that little bit, how much benefit. It's such a tough balance with so many different factors. Right, right. Because obviously we don't want them aspirating all their own secretions too. So if it's helping in that aspect, then that's wonderful. But like if there's amazing pleasure in that, you know, 15 cc's of whatever four times a day, like that's a little bit of joy that I could, if I can bring my kid or my, you know, relative, that's still huge too. Um, Moving on kind of through your visit and you've asked your, you know, questions and kind of gathered your history. What, what's next? I guess, you know, it might depend on where you are, right? If you're at bedside or if you're in your office. Um, the ICU. Talk, yeah. Take us yeah, through that. If, yeah. if the patient obviously can communicate um, and if they can tell you or if you have access to a family member too, I like to sort of hear what, what does a normal meal look like? What foods do they typically like to eat? What are some cultural considerations to think of too? Because sometimes We'll make recommendations to, you know, slow a patient down or things like that. But it's the way they've been eating for a million years. Um, And a lot of, you know, a lot of patients with developmental disabilities, especially, you know, kids with Down syndrome, they eat in a very, for lack of a better term, it looks ugly under a swallow study. You would just say, this is a mess. But for them, it's completely functional 
and they may have they may have never had you know an aspiration event. They may have never had a pneumonia. So it's really important to collect that data ahead of time because what we've seen in our field is sort of just being too conservative by saying, oh my goodness, this is not functional. We need to alter the diet or we need to thicken the liquids. And then you you know can send the patient to all these behaviors because you've just modified things that they don't understand or for what reason and decrease the quality of life. So I like to take a lot of steps back and just see what what is normal, what is considered functional for them, because we're just learning now that the range of normal is much, much, much bigger than we once thought. So if we can get that information from a patient or a family member, that's something that's that's really so crucial because we just we don't want to be thickening patients liquids, you know, without knowing for sure that that's absolutely what they need to be on. So. Yeah. Um, I'm glad yeah. you brought up pneumonia because I yeah. think, yeah. you know, when I was um, a junior resident, I kind of thought if a patient coughs when they eat, then they should be NPO. Like if they, you know, asp- aspiration equals don't eat. Right. But but, you know, now it's like, well, if you're not getting pneumonia, then, you know, maybe you have a you know strong cough. And, you know, if you aspirate a little bit, you can get it out and we don't have to just keep you from eating, right? Which is probably the worst thing you can do um, for a patient that's that's maybe having some issues Um, because maybe, I don't know, you don't use it, you lose it and maybe things get worse. I don't know. I was going to say those little (laughs) minor modifications might be 20,000 steps back. I feel like, tell us about what you and your Yeah. So we know a lot more about sort of the, the pillars of pneumonia at this point. Now we know that you have to have you know, a, a lesser functioning immune system. So if you have a well-functioning immune system, your chances of getting pneumonia are a lot less. Um, another thing to consider is the oral microbiome. What does that look like? If you have healthy oral care, if you're brushing your teeth, toothpaste, mouthwash, you're killing all that oral bacteria. So the chances of it, even if it does go into the lungs and you aspirate, the chances of it turning into pneumonia are really slim. And, you know, part of the healthy immune system, are they, we, we say, are they a walkie-talkie? Are they walking and talking? Because if they're up and functional and moving, then obviously they're going to have a, a stronger immune system. So those are things to consider too before we even look at, okay, so is this patient aspirating? Okay, yes, they are. But how is their immune system? How is their oral care? Uh, these are the things to consider. If those things are poor, then we know that they're at a much higher chance of aspirating. My son, for one, is what we call a functional aspirator. So he he does aspirate. We, we've seen it on a swallow study. He's never had pneumonia. Um, obviously, you know, he's, he's got severe special needs. So we are religious about brushing his teeth constantly. He, he doesn't walk on his own. He uses a gait trainer, but we make sure to get him up in it a few times a day, things like that to keep, keep walking, keep his immune system functioning. So there's a lot to consider with that. And then on the flip side, if we do see that patients have recurrent pneumonia or they are in for aspiration pneumonia, you know, what causes it? So then we try to go backwards and figure out that puzzle piece you know, is it because of a poor immune system or do they have a true dysphagia that's, you know, that they are aspirating all the time? So, you know, we've talked about this as just a really complex mechanism. But mm-hmm. um, Dr. Susan Langmore, who is uh, one of the researchers that created the fees procedure that I do, actually wrote a seminal paper, I believe back in, I think she wrote two iterations of it, 1998 and 2002, on the predictors of aspiration pneumonia. And dysphagia actually was number seven. So, Things like dependent for oral care, dependent for feeding, the number of medications, smoking, multiple medical diagnoses, number of decayed teeth, and suctioning are all before dysphagia. So these things are all really important to consider as well. And and like I said, you know, we for not 
just lack of knowing better, just assume when you aspirate, it turned into pneumonia, right? But there's so many other factors that we have to consider before we just say, oh, you know, you're going to get pneumonia if you aspirate. Here's some thickened liquids. You know, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about the different patient populations that you see and those nuances, whether it's the, you know, stroke patient, the head neck cancer patient, and I think you'd mentioned some of your prolonged intubation patients. How does that affect? Very much so. And and I think that's what's interesting because it causes a lot of conflict in our field because we do have SLPs that work with, like I said, these walkie-talkies, these, you know, patients that may have had a stroke. So they may have some impaired muscle functioning. They may have a paralyzed vocal fold. But other than that, you know, we're able to we're, we're able to rehab the swallow back to it being functional. On the flip side, you might have a patient that's in the ICU or a patient that has head and neck cancer. We're going to be much more conservative with with those patients, um, especially the transplant population, the lung transplant population. Those we have to be extremely conservative with. So, you know, a lot of times within our own field, you'll say, oh, I never use thickened liquids or I use thickened liquids all the time. And you know, we sort of have to back up and say, okay, what setting are you working with? What patient population are you working with? Because that makes the world of difference. You know, working in home health is going to be a lot less conservative because the patient is home. They are stable. Whereas obviously seeing patients in the ICU that may just be post-COVID coming off the vent, we're going to be a little more more conservative with those. So we work with a lot of different patient populations and in the NICU with, you know, developmental disabilities. So there's a lot of populations that we work with, and it's just something that I do in my continuing education is just make sure that what we're doing and the patient populations that we're serving, we're really knowledgeable in those conditions and how those specifically impact the swallow. And we're not just treating with this, you know, blanket approach to everything. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, a great point. Even in yeah. our own practices, I mean, how many times, Ash, have you changed up either your workup or your management options? whether it's something, you know, ear fluid is ear fluid or whatever it is, but because of the actual, when you tease out the clinical history, it's a whole different, right? Like, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot, there's always nuances uh, depending yeah. on the patient and, you know, what you're trying to treat, you know, what are the, your expected outcomes and that sort of thing for sure. Yeah. Can you walk us through some of the different assessments? So for example, like, you know, what does a, a bedside swallow evaluation look like in the ICU? Um, versus, you know, the kind of workup you would do when you're in a in a clinic or, you know, seeing patients outpatient. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much going to do the case history, um, do a clinical swallow examination, do a cranial nerve exam. Those are obviously pretty important for us to, you know, figure out is what we're working with. Neurological, you know, what what are the impairments there? The clinical swallowing exam, you're going to probably start with a the Yale swallow protocol or just a three ounce water challenge. These are Actually, nurses can even do these, can be a nursing screen. Um, So they take three ounces of water. And if the patient is able to chug the entire thing without stopping, without taking a breath, um, they're considered passed. So it means they don't have to go on for further swallowing evaluations. I will say the caveat with that is we are finding some different patient populations that the test isn't as reliable as we thought. So sort of back to the drawing board. Um, with that, but that at least gives us a good foundation because if, like I said, if they had to stop, if they had to cough, if they had to do anything, it should go to an automatic instrumental assessment. So fees or video fluoroscopy. Yeah, de- depending on what what the patient looks like, um, we might trial some foods and some liquids with them. Obviously, if they're in the ICU, we're not going to go, you know, there right away. But if they are coming to the clinic, we'll try some different textures, see how they do. 
things that are also important is is different, like coughing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge thing. If they're able to cough, then that's a good thing, right? They're able to protect their airway. So um, those are things that we we assess as well. And and I would think that the wa- you know drinking a cup of water that challenge is going to be more sensitive for picking up someone who might be at risk for aspiration because when you drink water it's going to go down faster. But you may not catch people who are going to have issues with you know solids or thicker foods. You right, know right, we have right. patients who you know are like oh I have trouble swallowing bread or yep, things like that. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. So that, so that's obviously, you know, the nuance of the test, right? So, you know, that's part of teasing that out a little bit more and, and trialing the different food textures. Uh, there's a lot that we do and, and there's sort of a movement away from doing just that, from just watching your patients eat as an assessment to doing a lot of these other tools. We have a lot more rating scales and things like that now that help us get a lot more information about our patients than just sort of, like you said, sitting and watching them eat bread and yeah. seeing if they can do it or not, you know? <laughs> Well, and I would imagine, I mean, what about, do you ever have to, like, if you're in the ICU or um, or even maybe routinely, uh, do you ever have to have, like, a section available? Do you have to tell RT or the nurse, like, hey, I might need extra, do you ever need extra set of hands or, right? Because things, most of the time before speech is involved, you you think that the patient's ready for that, right? That yes. Yeah. Somebody. So that's, yeah, that's very hospital specific. And the, the ICUs all sort of have their own practice patterns of how they do that. A big thing that we're sort of starting to overturn is this 24-hour rule. It used to be that when a patient came off the vent, they had to wait 24 hours to eat or drink. That really, there wasn't really research to support that. It just was sort of like this guideline that was put into place and nobody really knew why. So, you know, depending on on the patient's status and, and respiratory status, all that, that stuff, it's getting to be a lot sooner. That being said, sectioning is something that speech pathologists can do if they're deemed competent by a respiratory therapist or whatever the competencies in that hospital are. So I worked in one long-term acute care hospital that I was competent to do the suctioning. I worked in another one that they didn't allow us to do them. RT had to do it. So, it, you know, it's, we all You're play like, nice I'm just going to put the in the nose. I know, I know. <laughs> like, I worked with some wonderful <laughs> respiratory therapists that I'm like, can you please come help me? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, luckily, luckily I've worked with some phenomenal RTs and, and it is what it is, but. Yeah, I, I know there's definitely been a big push to get speech pathologists to have this competency to be able to manage the patients, you know, on their own. You know, we do, you know, speaking valve trials and actually they're called speaking valves, but they're actually also called speaking and swallowing valves. Um, so doing those trials are important for us to be able to suction if we need to, inflate, deflate the cuff, all that stuff, you know, as long as we've been deemed competent by the facility is something that we're able to do. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, for example, patients who have a trach, or maybe patients who have an NG tube or a Dobhoff tube. You know, there's other things that are in the upper air digestive tract that are usually not there. And, you know, just thinking intuitively, it seems like those are going to affect your swallow. Yes. How do you take that into account when you're assessing someone, you know, because you um, assume, okay, maybe some of this dysfunction is because that's there, um, but we're also trying to kind of move you along and, you know, pass the patient to be able to start eating more. Um, what is that? You know, how does that play into your evaluation? Yeah, I, I think that's the necessary evil of the NG tubes, right? I mean, I used to love feasing patients with an NG tube because you would just pass the scope right along next to the NG tube and you had, you know, very clear entry there. But on the flip side, 
you know, how many NG tubes have you seen that have been twisted and wrapped around and in horrible, you know, positioning? And that gives you your answer right, you know, right there. A, a lot of it depends on how long they've had the NG tube as well. You know, we, we all know they should not be in there long. It's a temporary fix. But sometimes these patients get sent from the nursing homes with them or they get just lost in the shuffle and they have them for an extended period of time. And swallowing absolutely, you know, as you mentioned, is a use it or lose it type thing. And, and the best cure for a swallowing problem is swallowing. So if this is in there and it is impeding, you know, what we try to do is, you know, can we pull it to get some exercises done? Is there alternate means of nutrition? Do they really truly need the NG tube? So there's a lot to evaluate here because we absolutely have seen a lot of patients that their swallowing is impaired because of the NG tube. And once that's pulled, they are able to regain functioning pretty rapidly. What are your thoughts on, you know, like a G tube, um, you know, having, do you feel like it's better to move forward and, you know, maybe do that earlier just to get the NG out of the way and get them, you know, able to practice more um, eating from, you know, normally and then just supplement nutrition with the G tube? Or do you feel like, I mean, it's probably patient specific, but De what definitely is, what patient think? specific. And I would say, you know, sort of the camp that I'm in is we want to avoid a G tube at all costs. Okay. So we want, we usually are begging to allow the doctors to give us a few days to rehab the swallow. Um, usually, you know, a lot of times it comes head to head on like a Friday night, right? And they right. just want to, you know, stick a peg in the patient. It's like, please just give me till Monday to try to get some swallowing going to see if we can really get this patient going. Because what's so hard is it, it's tough to rehab a patient that has a G-tube. Because if you think about it, the G-tube's in the stomach. It's telling the patient that they're, they're fed, that they're getting nutrition. It signals to the brain, you don't need food. You're not hungry. So going in to do swallowing therapy on a patient with a peg, they're usually like, oh, I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat. I feel really full. I have this tube in. And it's sort of this mental gymnastics that you have to tell them, like, I know your brain's telling you that, but I, I'm telling you. We need to try to swallow because that's the only way that it's going to, you know, we're going to get rid of that tube. So it's a big school of thought that we want to try to prolong the G-tube as long as humanly possible. Obviously, mm -hmm. we don't want to starve our patients or, you know, have them, yeah. you know, lose nutrition status or anything like that. But if there's something that can be done in the meantime, um, that, that's really what we try to fight for. Yeah, I find that we have a lot of infants that um, are home with... Uh, a drop-off tube for months, uh, depending on their overall clinical history prognosis. Our pediatric GI and, you know, SLPs are amazing uh, when it comes to outpatient management of that. And, it, and you know, again, I, I don't do adults anymore, but I, I did find that ha dispoing, right? You had to figure out how to get the patient out of the hospital and having an NG or a drop-off as enteral access always limited that as well. And so it's it's just... It's hard to, you know, is there more, is it more common to dispo adults now with um, NG and DOP-OFF, whether it's skilled nursing, uh, LTAC home, or do you find that that's not as much of an issue anymore? I, I would say it really depends. I've worked at some facilities that absolutely, and I've worked in others that really try to avoid that as much as possible. So I think it really just depends on the interdisciplinary team there because I think, you know, we all want them to be, you know, as stable nutrition-wise as possible, but we also don't want to make it an even harder rehab road to begin with. So it, it, it stinks because obviously now there's the big push for decreasing length of stay in the hospital. So we want to get patients out as quick as possible. But then the people on the rehab end are like, please don't like keep yeah. them one more day or, you know, stabilize them a little bit more. So it's, it's really tough, tough to balance. And I think that's just where it comes down to the interdisciplinary team 
getting together and setting sort of these guidelines and these and these competencies in place, like, okay, this is what we're going to do with this patient, or this is what this really looks like. And the SLP fighting for one more day to, you know, maybe get that NG tube pulled and get some swallowing started or, you know, working with RT to see, you know, how are they, is respiratory stable, things like that. So I just think it, it really comes down to obviously patient specific, but really the interdisciplinary team working together to figure out what's the best long-term plan for this patient. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like rehab criteria is so stringent. I mean, they really are strong or kind of firm, maybe is a better word, about when they feel like the patient's ready. And I think that's a great thing because they want patient, they want it to be successful, right? You don't want a bunch of back and forth and you want the goals of the rehab to be met as right. the patient's ready. So I, you have to appreciate that. But it's also frustrating to think that you're making clinical decisions based on the ability to go to rehab, right? You made a decision to put 100%. in a peg. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just for dispo. So it's absolutely. it's tough, um, but it's it's the healthcare environment that we that we live in. So I, I know. We make I know. it work, right? Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, we take care of a lot of, you know, head and neck cancer patients, um, which is a unique patient population itself when it comes to swallowing, because a lot of times there's been an alteration in the, you know, oral cavity, pharynx, larynx, you know, there's there's been surgery or radiation, you know, all these types of changes. And so I think, you know, those patients in particular are uh, a unique group and probably need to start working with an SLP, you know, from the beginning. I don't know, what do you, what's your experience with that? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of my really close colleagues, that's really all they do. They work in, in these head and neck, you know, cancer centers. And, that, and that's really all that they see is they see patients prophylactically, get them started on swallowing exercises, you know, before the surgery. Um, yeah, so so I think it, it's so important for them to, there's a lot of research, obviously, that getting started with exercises prophylactically is so important. I've worked with a few laryngectomy patients. I, there was one place that I work that we got a lot of laryngectomy patients and I haven't seen any since, but really, really fascinating to see patients swallow that are that have a laryngectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty amazing what the body can actually do. But yeah, it, it's I think one thing about our field that is so cool is that if you can specialize, it's it's really super rewarding to learn everything about that specific patient population. And I just, yes, like I said, some of my best friends work in these really specialized cancer centers and that's all that they see. And you know, they know about the different chemo and radiations and the impact that that can have and, you know, the fibrosis and everything that can, all the side effects that it can create. And so, you know, I, I have such a, I feel so passionately for them and the work that they do. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's some, um, a misunderstanding that a patient with a, with a laryngectomy, you know, should be able to swallow no problem because right. they can't right. aspirate anymore, right? right. They've had right. Right. complete separation of their upper digestive tract. Right. But but because I remember attendings in, in residency being like, there's nowhere else for it to go. You know, they'll, they'll eat fine. It's just going to just you know, there's, it's, you put it in the mouth. It's got to go down. But it, but it's, you know, it's a big surgery that changes all of that anatomy. And there can be a lot of it, it can take time to get yeah. to yeah. where there you can, can be fistulas. Again. There can be all sorts of complications. Yeah. And, and I think that is that is a tough part. You know, obviously, we want the surgery to go so smooth. It's great when you have a laryngectomy patient that can eat without any troubles. But the reality is, you know, there's different pressures that are now changed and the swallowing mechanism really is just based on pressures. Uh, so there's a lot to consider and why, you know, they should have swallow studies pre and post 
surgery and really pretty often actually throughout the whole head and neck cancer process. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably something that's almost lifetime. I mean, if you think about the head and neck cancer patient, if they've had primary surgery, whether it's a, a laryngectomy to whatever free flap to having a trach, then maybe getting decannulated, then having had potentially chemo, radiation, those long-term effects. I mean, the way that all the different I guess, uh, changes, whether it's anatomy and side effects, are going to affect over time. And so I can only imagine, you know, your SLP is is going to be your right-hand person to kind of help you gain all that back, whether it's speaking or swallowing in, in, in those patients. But As far as when we're sending patients to, to our SLP colleagues, um, what can I be doing to kind of help Tee, tee up that visit? You know, is, are there things that we can have patients, you know, start working on? Or is it good to get a some sort of swallow study before they see you? You know, do you like to have that um, video fluoroscopy swallow eval when, when, during that first visit when you're evaluating a patient? Or is it better to just, you know, I guess it depends on if the SLP has fees available to them, right? right? right, right. But yeah. what, what can we be doing just to help set patients up other than reiterating that um, speech-language pathologists do treat dysphagia? <laughs> I love this question, Ashley. Thank you. I think the fact that you're even asking this just means so much to a lot of SLPs. But I, I think really the most important thing, a, a lot of times we get a lot of patients without any sort of paper trail whatsoever, and we have no idea where they came from, what they've been through, what medical intervention they've had, what surgical intervention they've had, what pharma pharmacological intervention they've had. So really just a solid thorough case history is is worth its weight in gold. Yeah. And to mm -hmm. us, if we can get a swallow study ahead of time also, that that means so much because that at least gives us a starting point to say, oh, wow, it looks like they functionally approved or it looks like they're, you know, going downhill. You know, it gives us a good baseline. So in, in a perfect world, that would be wonderful, but really, truly just a solid case history. And I think just being accessible, you know, I, I we work so as part of a big interdisciplinary team, and sometimes there's just a lot of holes in the story. And, you know, oh, could we just call the ENT and get some more information? Or could we call the pulmonologist and get some more information? I think that's usually, you know, I, I for lack of a better term, hate our healthcare system right now, and that it's so hard to get a hold of each other, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you have to call like the zero line at the hospital and right. track down everybody. And I just wish there was a way for medical professionals to like have, you know, backdoor communication to, yeah. you know, hey, I've got a question about this patient. You know, what can you tell me? So I think just being accessible or, you know, letting the SLP know, hey, my name's Ashley. Here's the number of my office. You know, let me know how I can help. That's really just so helpful because a lot of times we're just piecing together what we have with a patient that's been dropped at our doorstep, for lack of a better term, yeah. and we're left to do the solo study with the information that we have in front of us with a very limited amount of time. Yeah. And then you sort of send them back off into the world like, you know, did I answer all their questions? Did, you know, was that the right answer? So um, a really solid case history is is everything. Well, yeah. Well, and that, you know, without that communication, it's so interesting that you could be like, as the ENT, I have one idea, right, of what mm -hmm. I think is going on. Right, right, and they right. have an assessment or right. an evaluation. It's completely different. And then I'm like, you know, I'm obviously missing something. And right. so that dialogue is so beneficial for the patient. And it's yeah. easy when you're on the same EPIC system or whatnot. Right. But having to reach out and, and 
it can definitely make it um, real painful (laughs) (laughs) for everybody, for the patients too, because they're just like, can y'all just talk to each other? And the answer should be yes, right? Right, right. I even even went through that with my own son. He got, he was sent to a rehab center and speech pathologist evaluated him and, you know, she called, didn't know I was a speech pathologist and just gave me this whole report of like, you know, he can't do this. We're going to modify his diet to this. He can't do this. And I was like, yeah, no crap, lady. Like that's his functional. And I was so angry because I was like, had they just reached out to me to begin with, I could have given them all this information. But instead, you know, it seemed just like a whole waste of her time and medical resources to go through and do this whole thing and had really nothing to do with how he presents on a daily basis. So, um, Obviously, that could be a whole other episode is yeah, interdisciplinary absolutely. communication. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, we we definitely it's it's eye opening when you're a patient when you are on the other side of healthcare. You know, it really changes the way you think about you know your interactions with patients when you kind of have to walk in those steps. Sounds horrible and inhumane. It's like a dog chip. You want to like put a chip in them with like all of their information, like so that anybody can. <laughs> I yeah. can read it. Like, Especially patients that have a complex medical history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Do y'all do a lot of adult neuromuscular electrical stimulation, the NMES or vital stim is what I think people like to call it? Yeah, it's Who's it's it's for? interesting because it's 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 controversial. I was gonna say, is it in um, vogue, out of vogue? <laughs> it, it depends. It depends on the patient population. And it depends on the device that you're looking for. So neuromuscular electrical stimulation is a wonderful tool. What depends is the device that you use and the parameters that you use, because there are some that are approved by the FDA and there are some that are not. And you, the answer is no, you cannot just pick up any device, slap, slap electrodes on someone's swallow and start zapping them and hope that they can swallow because you can, yeah, you can send them into laryngeal spasms and all that. And we don't want to be on the end mm-hmm. of that. So um, short answer, there's absolutely a place for it. It's just very device specific. And, you know, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of that right now, but there's some devices that I don't ever want to use because their parameters can be dangerous and we're not FDA approved. And then there's others that are. So the big thing is that some of the some of the devices really only are for sensory stim. And there's others that actually have been shown on fees and video fluoroscopy that they get actual motor movement of the swallowing muscles as well. So um really ideal for, you know, sort of those post-stroke patients, um, really helping to Sort of bring those muscles and nerves back to life after having a stroke and seen some really really cool data with it so it's really it's it's a wonderful tool it's definitely something we should have in our toolbox but i just have to put that caveat disclaimer out there that you can't just pick up any device and slap electrodes on a patient's neck yeah yeah is it is it like a tens unit it, it kind of is, but what, like, I believe TENS is just sensory, right? Okay. Whereas I believe neuromuscular educator, neuromuscular electrical stimulation is actually supposed to cause a motor movement as well. Interesting. Well, and when we're sending patients to you, um, what what can we do as far as setting expectations? Because sometimes I'll talk to patients, you know, and say, you know, maybe you, you may only have to see them one time and maybe they'll give you some exercises you can do on your own. Um, you know, they may want you to, you know, come back and see them a few times. You know, it depends on the evaluation. That's kind of generally what I tend to tell patients. But um, what other things do we say? It's really patient specific, to be honest. Like a lot of patients will, a lot of patients want to improve rapidly. You know, they want to be able to chew the finest, chewiest steak ever. Or some really just don't care. So right. the, you know, the prognosis and the length of treatment and the intensity of treatment really depends on their goals of care. Um, and I think that's somewhere that we sort of get ourselves in trouble because we just assume, 
you know, oh, well, let me just give you, you know, put you on a pure diet, puree diet, you know, you'll be on your way. And the patient gets home and they're like, what the heck? Like, no, I want a burger. I want a steak. Or on the flip side, you know, you have somebody that maybe doesn't have dentures or just wants to eat ice cream for the rest of their life. They don't care about eating a steak. So it really, truly depends. So I think, you know, getting that information out in the case history and when you're doing the, the swallow study, um, we have a lot of wonderful tools available to us. Technology is beautiful and and what we're able to do now. We have a lot of different biofeedback tools um, that we can use. We do have some really intense dysphagia exercise programs too. So there's a few different programs that, I mean, it, it's hours of swallowing therapy for, you know, three to four weeks on end. And we've seen some patients go from NPO back to eating again in a month on these protocols. So really just depends on how much the patient wants to put into it and really what they want their quality of life to be. And, you know, if they want to eat ice cream for the rest of their lives and they're fine with that, then, you know, we'll just yeah. do one or two sessions and tell them, you know, do this, don't do this, do this, come back and see me if you change your mind or, yeah. you know, we will do some really intense rehab. Can you do some of it virtually? Are y'all able to do yeah, some? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the beauty, you know, the beauty of COVID, <laughs> such a thing, um, is that was one thing that right when COVID first hit, I believe Medicare um, allowed us to do teletherapy for dysphagia, which they didn't used to allow. And then I believe when they just, they were going to overturn the regs, but they actually kept it that we still can do it. So I think that's been a game changer, especially for a lot of these rural you know, if you, if you live three hours away from a major medical center, you know, come in for your swallow study. But then if we can just do treatment, you know, over Zoom or something, it's it's a huge, huge benefit to the patient. So um, short answer, yeah, there's still obviously a lot of nuances with the different insurance companies and what they'll pay for and, you know, dealing with technology with patients. But I believe for the most part, it's a huge, huge, huge blessing. I know I actually have a friend go be in Texas and she just got some um, teletherapy regs overturned for working with babies. So she's actually, she's doing a whole seminar called like fed with telemed, um, just really helping, That's helping awesome. these, yeah, these having kids, to bring helping the, the parents. Right, right. Child, I mean, other right. childcare, it's, it's alive. Yeah. I think vir virtual is here to stay in some yeah. form or another. For yeah. Sure. And, and I think it's beautiful in this aspect, you know, if we can just do a lot of consulting and things like that and have them only come in when they, really truly need to. Well, they're eating at home. So to be able right. to do therapy at home in their natural right. setting and where they're going right, to be, right. also those adjustments, modifications, questions, hopefully yeah. only uh, maximizes. Uh, their yeah. Therapy. Yeah. And we do have, like I said, the technology is just wild what we're able to do now. And there's a lot of different biofeedback tools that, you know, the patients are able to place on themselves and then we're able to, you know, read the, you know, read the muscle activation and things like that on our end. So that's really cool. One more thing before before we let you go. There's a, a patient group that I always struggle with. You know, the patient comes in and their the chief complaint is dysphagia. They're having some trouble swallowing. They have a normal flexible scope exam. They are not losing weight, seem perfectly healthy and normal. Otherwise, get a modified barium swallow. It's also normal. And they're like, well, doc, why can't I swallow? You know, I'm I really am having trouble swallowing. I'm really not, you know, not going to let this go because you tell them, okay, good thing is everything looks normal, normal, normal. But they're like, no, I'm not normal. You know, what's going on? Um, how do you take care of those patients? Or what do you usually find? A majority, majority of the time is it's muscle tension dysphagia. And I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that. I, I feel like I learned that term in the last maybe couple of years from our um, speech therapist. Yep, yep. And that's really sort of what we're finding. And there, I, I believe um, there's even more work that came out this year, even 
spelling it out even more. And a lot of it is just stress. Um, it's They're seeing it a lot more now after COVID. Um, it's really interesting because it's a lot of just where people are holding their stress and their tension, but it's so bad that the muscles are so inflamed that it's really impairing the swallow. So a lot of it is these vocal exercises, these vocal relaxation techniques. So, you know, speech pathologists work with swallowing and voice. I only do swallowing, but a lot do both or some just do voice. But that's sort of where I rely on my SLP colleagues that specialize in voice to do these vocal relaxation techniques, which can help to relax the swallow. Something else that, you know, I don't know that it's controversial now, but I did write about it in my book because it is it comes up enough is sort of the psychological component too. Um, and patients going for hypnotherapy or therapy, or they may have been through trauma subconsciously long, long, long ago. And so there, there actually is research and there is studies that have shown that you know, sometimes these patients need this subconscious change in order to be able to swallow if there is nothing that we can see, you know, on an actual swallow study. So, I mean, it makes sense when you think about, you know, in our GI clinic, there's a GI psychologist, you know what I mean? So your swallow is part of your, it's all together. It's part of that theme. So it makes sense for sure. Yeah. I think as a medical professional, you want to just be able to see the problem and diagnose it and fix it. And yeah. It's not that easy sometimes. And I know some people think that's, you know, woo-woo and isn't the truth, but there there is some truth to it. Well, so I do, you know, I, I do want patients to know that is something if if they're desperate and want to research that a little bit further. I think an ENT, especially because so much of it is quality of life, right? The some of the problems that we have or seeing our patients, whether it's vertigo, feeling, you know the dizzy, the migraine, the headache, sinus headache patient, or, you know, dysphagia any little bit that can help the patient move forward, whether you've identified something or not. And many times there's not a necessarily a um, pathologic reason or a surgery or medicine, but if there's something, some tool, that's always helpful. Yeah. And I've, I've had patients who bring up stress to me. So, you know, yeah. I may be talking to them and say, well, good thing is everything looks normal. We're not finding anything. And like, sometimes they'll be like, they'll, they'll say, um, do you think it could be stress? You know, and I'll be like, well, yes, you know, you know, tell me, tell, are, are you stressed? Like, yeah, actually, let's, let's talk about that. So I think patients are, you know, kind of cluing in on how that mind-body connection works and how, you know, if you are stressed out, sometimes your, your body doesn't work right. Sometimes yeah. as physicians, especially, I don't think we're always clued into that. Right. Because we're part of our training. Right. Yeah. We're supposed to find that problem, fix yeah. it fix the problem. Yeah. And <laughs> I know I've, I've definitely gotten in some arguments with other professionals just in our field about it because I'm just like, it's, there's nothing to else to explain. Like you yeah. said, you know, and then you send a patient off to a psychologist or to further explore it and they, you know, come back and they're like, that worked. You know, I had to do these exercises or do these different meditation, you know, guided meditation exercises and it helped. So, you know, I think it's one thing I know from being a mother and dealing with my son's issues, you just, you have to listen to the patient. You know, we know what we know, but the, we only know what we learned, right? So. Yeah. yeah. I remember this was probably January when like, what was it? Omicron was surging and I had like a sore throat and a headache. I swear I had thought I had COVID. Got the, got the test. Three days later, I was fine. And I was like, nope, that's just me. Middle age, reflux, two kids and a headache. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's nothing wrong. Okay. Like, Yep. <laughs> Take a look in the mirror, figure your stuff out. You know, it's not COVID. <laughs> Go back to work. 
Well, I think we could probably go, you know, on and on about this. But as we round it out, you know, what is there anything that we have, you know, left out as far as, you know, the the workup and management of the adult dysphagia patients? Anything you want to leave our listeners with? I think we pretty much covered it all. I think it's just so important to really, you know, figure out what the patient wants and what sort of their swallowing and eating rituals look like before, you know, this impairment or sickness or illness happened because sometimes we try to fix things that weren't broken to begin with or we have these ideas of what is important in our culture and maybe totally different to a different family. So um, really, I think that's paramount and first and foremost, obviously, getting the swallow studies is so important as well. Um, you know, you guys are you guys are doctors, you know, the importance of instrumentation. And it's just so tough when we hear, you know, administrators saying, well, we don't want to pay for those tests or, you know, can't you just tell if they're aspirating? No, you can't. Like, there's no explanation other than no, I, we don't have x-ray vision. So <laughs> so as much as you could, you know, help us and advocate to get those tests done um, is really what's best for the patient. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, listeners, please um, check out Teresa on her podcast, uh, Swallow Your Pride, her book, So You're Having Trouble Swallowing. Uh, what about, are you on any social media? Um, like, I you know? am. I'm mostly on Instagram. Teresa Richard SLP is my name on there. Um, cool. I think I'm on Twitter. Sometimes I'm on Facebook, but Instagram is usually where I am. So awesome. Check out Teresa, y'all. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. <laughs>